Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so happy to welcome Maya Payne Smart to the podcast today. Maya is a book lover, an educator, and an author whose book, Reading for Our Lives, a literacy action plan from birth to six, gives parents practical tips for raising confident, fluent readers. Her website, mayasmart.com, provides tips and tools for parents to nurture, support, and advocate for their children's quest to become strong readers. Maya graduated with honors from Harvard University and received a master's degree in journalism from the Medill School at Northwestern. She holds a faculty appointment in educational policy and leadership in the College of Education at Marquette University. She and her husband, Shaka Smart, head men's basketball coach at Marquette, have a daughter, Zora, who is 11. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Maya. Thank you so much for having oh, me. really happy to have you. And I'm so glad that Nancy Red, our mutual friend who's also been on the podcast, connected us. So I can't wait to talk with you about all the great work that you're doing to help parents with one of their most important responsibilities, helping their children become good, confident readers. Now, I imagine most parents know how important it is that their children learn to read, but most don't have an intuitive sense of how to help them master this really critical skill. But now, thanks to your research and all the tools and tips you've gathered in this book, they have a roadmap. So I want to hear all about it. So let's get started. I'd like to start with asking you how and where you grew up. I always like to ask parents about their childhood memories. So where did you grow up? And can you give us your earliest memories of becoming a reader? Yes, I grew up in Akron, Ohio. Prior to that, I was in Kent, Ohio up until preschool. Mm -hmm. So my mom worked her entire career at Kent State University. So a lot of my early memories are related to things at that university. They had a Virginia Hamilton conference. And so she mm -hmm. would always bring home those wonderful children's books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I just grew up surrounded by just wonderful books that showed images of black children. And then when we moved to Akron, when I was in kindergarten, I have vivid memories of Ayers Branch Library, which was a former physician's home that had become a library. So it was just the absolute coziest Aww place to read. And so I remember walking in there to the kids section. I made the right turn when you came in the front door and would just spend so much time. My neighbor was a librarian there. So I just have so many memories of being surrounded by books and reading books. I don't have many memories actually of being read too, although I know I must have been. Hmm. So funny you say that. I too have really, really strong memories of being in our public library. I grew up in Queens and when I was really young and my mom was a reading teacher and we would, she'd take me to the library all the time. And as you described it, I can see where I would go to the children's section to find books. There's, I mean, I know you do a lot of work in libraries and there is nothing better than just being able to walk into that house of books and pick one out and get to take one home. <laughs> so it sounds like you did, you grew up physically with a lot of books around you. Were your parents avid readers as well? My mom definitely was. I think that my dad was also, but less books and literature for him. It was more practical mm -hmm. books. He was a lawyer. So I remember he had a giant, giant Webster's <laughs> dictionary in his office and it was on a podium all by itself. <laughs> and when I would ask him questions about things, he would say, when in doubt, look it up. So I just, <laughs> I spent a lot of time thumbing through this giant thing, which is of course unimaginable <laughs> for kids today because they can look up things on their computers or, you know, a parent will just open their phone and look something up. But there was this giant book with center stage in his office. And then I remember a few other books on his shelf, things like 
how to win friends and influence people ah. or the power of positive <laughs> thinking. So those sort of kind of classic help, self-help books. <laughs> yeah. Dale Carnegie, I remember. I certainly knew we had those on our shelves as well. <laughs> so let's fast forward now. You you grew up in this book-rich environment. And were you an interested reader? I mean, did you do you remember loving to read when you were growing up? I, I do remember loving it. I'm an only mm -hmm. child, and I'm the kind of only child that to this day, I can sit and read a book all day and be perfectly happy in a chair as a child with a hot chocolate or something and as an adult with tea or coffee and just am completely content and read a wide range of things. So literature, but also how-to things and memoirs and all the different genres. I just love books oh. and reading. Oh. And then as a child in elementary school, I remember having wonderful teachers who really encouraged me mm -hmm. to write. And so those two things kind of went hand in hand for me mm -hmm. as well. So I always thought I would be a writer, but didn't know that I would write about reading. So let me ask you, you may be, you're younger than I am. You may not have had this in your school, but when you were growing up, did they have those, um, I think it was Scholastic, did they have the book sales where you would get a sheet to fill out and you could order books and then they would come in the classroom, you would fill out, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was, oh, and it was so, so exciting. exciting. You would fill out a sheet. This, I'm sure this doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I hope it does, but uh, it's all probably digital. But you'd get a sheet and it was sort of like an order pad and you could check off your, from home, you've been told how many books you could order and then you'd give them a sheet back and then weeks would go by. <laughs> and then suddenly, but just as you've forgotten all <laughs> about it, you get, it's like a present of books. So <laughs> I wonder if that actually still happens. <laughs> yes, I definitely have that memory of sort of flipping through the little paper catalog. It was a material of newsprint, if I yes, remember absolutely. correctly, and you kind of check off your selections. <laughs> but we didn't have many bookstores in the way that there are cute mm. independent bookstores with different vibes now. Then we had B. Dalton Bookseller, mm -hmm. Walden Books in the shopping right. mall is where I remember those smaller bookstores. So when you're in those little bookstores, there's kind of a limited selection. Right. So I would read every book in a series, you know, all the Babysitter's Club, all the Sweet Valley High, all the Fear Street, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. they had. <laughs> yeah, boy, those are great, great memories. Let's fast forward now. So now you have a darling baby girl. And you have said that you wished you'd had this book when your daughter was very young. So how did you approach reading with her? And, and how soon did you approach reading with her? I started from day one, as soon as she came home, reading board books. And mm -hmm. I had this collection of wonderful, beautiful children's literature with, you know, gorgeous illustrations and, you know, poetic lines. And an infant, of course, is not getting the full benefit <laughs> <laughs> of the selection of books that I had curated. And so I just had a lot of questions. I remember being really comforted by a little board book by Jabari Asim that went, Little Princess honeydew, giggly, wiggly, precious pearl. I'm so glad that you're my girl. And I would just sit there and rock and read this one little board book over and over. And I had a little bit of intensity about it <laughs> because I wanted her to be a reader. And I was like, we have to read every day. And I was like, I'm sure she doesn't mind the repetition, but I'm a detail person. So I think just personality wise, after a couple of weeks of that, I was like, there has to be more to it than reading to her <laughs> to help her become a reader. So I got curious just about the the mechanics of it. What what does it take? Mm -hmm. So I had memories of already knowing how to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea how to teach it if I needed to. And I didn't know that she would just pick it up mm -hmm. either. <laughs> so it was just that kind of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Like if reading these books over and over again isn't enough, what else do I need to do? Huh, I love that spirit. So is that what led you to, to dive into the research pool of early literacy? 
It was that combined with news articles. As you mentioned, I have a journalism background. Mm -hmm. And I remember when she was two or three coming across a lot of articles about disparities in reading achievement between black children and white children. Mm -hmm. And they were so vast. And of course, we know that those are numbers on average, like on average, black children score lower than white children in this metric and that metric. But I really wanted to know why, as a black mom, what was different about the education our kids were receiving in school, what was different about their preparation prior to school, Mm -hmm. what was going on in all these different kinds of kindergarten or all the different kinds of preschool programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had my daughter in a Montessori program that I loved. It had this emphasis on nature and outdoor time and exploration and, you know, practical life skills. They're pouring water in little jugs and sweeping the floor (laughs) and doing all these things. But again, I wanted to know, how does this connect to reading? And they were also doing things like teaching them cursive. They're tracing sandpaper letters that were cursive. So I'm looking at those sandpaper letters and saying that there's a disconnect between just even the shapes of letters that they're focused on in school and the print that I'm reading in the picture books. Mm. So I just had a lot of questions. (laughs) So it was a combination of feeling like I needed to be doing more Mm -hmm. and not knowing what the more was, and then just deep concern for Black children in general. So then when I put the two together, it was sort of like, I need to figure this out for myself. And then whatever I learn that works, I want to share with other parents. And so it started with some blog posts and then mm-hmm. got more focused and more serious over time. Wow, that that is great. And, and, and I, I love this especially because it, it tracks a similar story for me in that once I got a lot of information about parenting, I really wanted to share it. And I love that instinct. And so it's to everybody's benefit that you had all those questions. <laughs> So I've heard you say that one of the most important things that you hope parents learn from your book is that it's never too early to start helping your child to learn to read. I mean, as you said, you instinctively knew to start as soon as she came home. And while everybody doesn't know that, some people may think they can't sit up and look at the book, you know, it's too soon. But can you tell us why starting really early from day one is so important? There are two big pieces of it. And so one is looking at print and kind of mapping those lines and curves on paper to sounds. But the other enormous piece of it is vocabulary and background knowledge and things that contribute to their comprehension. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. even if a child, when they're three or four or five or six or however they are, when they learn to decode and map the letters to sound, they can sound out words but still have no understanding of what they mean or no understanding of what they mean when they're together in a sentence or a paragraph. Mm -hmm. So building a strong vocabulary is so important. And that vocabulary is built through conversation. And so as parents, it's extraordinarily helpful Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we talk to babies as if they understand us Mm -hmm. and we pay attention to their gaze and what they're pointing at and those babbles and respond. The more we respond, the more they babble. And it really develops their ability to express themselves verbally. And then when we get to the point where we understand what they're saying, (laughs) and they (laughs) understand what we're saying, it's sort of a gradual thing. It's not Mm -hmm. like, you know, on their second birthday, or some particular month, they get it. It's a sort of a cumulative process. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is building the parent habit of talk and conversation early so that we're well-practiced in it by the time it really counts. <laughs> ah, well, that that's interesting. And, and I appreciate that. I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, because to your point, none of us, when our babies are born, have all of this information in our head at the ready, and we have to practice 
doing what it takes to to engage them. And so we have a, a longer runway if we start as soon as they're born. <laughs> so by the time by the time they're old enough to respond, we're really good at it. So right. so you you talk you talk a lot about this conversation, as you said, the back and forth. And this I found really intriguing. And there there's been studies that show that children have to hear a lot of words. But it sounds as if what you're saying, it's not just words, but it's vocabulary, it's conversation, it's engaging the child in conversation. Is that right? Absolutely. You got it exactly right. And I too thought of the advice to talk to your baby or talk to your toddler as being about what I was saying, what I was imparting <laughs> to Zora, <laughs> but the learning for the child is really in that exchange, in the dialogue, in them attempting to say something in response when they're cooing and babbling in the beginning. And as they get older, them listening, understanding what you're saying, mm -hmm. responding, challenging you, elaborating, asking questions. Mm -hmm. And so if we think of the talking more about the talking that they're doing, even before it's in fully fleshed out, complete sentences and words mm -hmm. that we understand. Mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. overheard recently conversations in the airport between parents and young children, and they don't seem to understand really a word of what the little one is saying, but they're <laughs> nodding and smiling and <laughs> encouraging. But, but one day <laughs> that child will speak clearly enough that the parent will really understand. But there's so much, I always, when I see that, I always want to pull that parent aside and say, you're doing such a great job. Keep it up. Because <laughs> there are also parents who, who aren't talking and think, oh, it's just, it's a baby. They don't understand. Why would mm -hmm. I talk to someone that can't reply? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that's exactly right. When I read about your talking this conversation, I'm thinking, hmm, and I wonder what that really looks like, but I know what it looks like. You know, you're, when your child is a day old, you can look at its little face and say, Oh, are you hungry? You sound like you're hungry. And then they'll say something back or they'll cry or whatever. And you can take that response as, their conversation <laughs> and just keep going. I mean, people do it with their animals all the time. So <laughs> it's, it's easy. They really easy do. do. <laughs> it's easy to do with your, your children as well. And the thing for parents to remember is that parents speak a lot less than we think we do. Even mm. parents who do know to engage back and forth with kids often could do it a bit more if mm -hmm. they had just gotten that insight that this really matters. You're building their brain, you're nurturing their development. Mm -hmm. And then there are other parents. I am a more introverted, quiet parent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think there are sort of temperament personality differences that impact how much parents speak with kids. And so we need some public awareness campaigns so that the quiet parents speak up. <laughs> you know, I think that's a really important point. I mean, I'm a natural extrovert, always have been. And so I was happy to have somebody else to talk to <laughs> when the baby came along. But now I have a, an array of children and, and they range in from introverted to extroverted. And I appreciate that children, people who are quieter. I mean, a lot of thoughts are in their head, but they don't speak as much. So for parents out there that aren't naturally inclined to just chitter chatter, and in fact, may even be annoyed by that as a concept, if you think of, the, <laughs> you might want to think of this as sort of a parenting role that you should take on for the benefit of your child, because it, even if it's not your natural instinct, it's really helpful for them. You've also talked about the importance of narration, of talking to children about what's going on around them. I mean, in, in an effort, I guess, to make conversation, you can just point out things. And if they raise their hand in that direction, you can sort of talk to them about it. When I'm on the streets of New York City, and I see a lot of people pushing strollers, you know, with the invariably they're on their phone, because the baby's in the carriage, and there's not a lot of back and forth, because understandably, parents think this is some me time, because they're going to a destination. But 
I often think that would be a great opportunity to engage with your child as you pass things. You know, is that a point for narration? Is that the kind of narration you're talking about? Yes. And so in the book, I describe an acronym talk. And the T is for taking turns, just to remind people about the importance of exchange and dialogue. And the A is ask questions, because that's a natural way when you have sort of run out of things to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then it's a natural way to prompt their thinking in response. But the L is for label and point. And mm. so that's a great one for the parent that's tired and you're like, I don't have anything else to say. But talk <laughs> about the, the blade of grass and how green it is or how pointy it is. And so in any situation, unless you're in a sensory deprivation tank, there's something around you <laughs> that has <laughs> some color, some shape, some texture, something that you can talk about. And then the K in that acronym is just keep the conversation going. And so I was really thoughtful about the elements of that little acronym because I was like, what does the research say? There was a lot of research about uh, parents, moms, the particular study featured moms, not dad, but moms who asked questions during story time and how that was correlated positively with language development in kids. So Mm. if people are remembering to take turns, they're remembering to ask questions, which is another way of taking turns if you Mm -hmm. listen for the answer. (laughs) And then labeling and pointing, you're also giving them all that that vocabulary. Early on, they're learning really concrete things, names and colors and things that they can touch and picture. But then you can keep labeling and pointing to more abstract things as they get older. Wow, that that's great. I, I want to ask you about briefly about book reading, because you mentioned that as an important thing. I mean, parents, I think anyone who thinks about raising a reader thinks about reading to them at some point. But but you note, as the research has as well, that it's not the be-all, end-all. If that's all you do, then you're not necessarily doing enough. So can you just give us a few tips as what parents can do? We all know parents get tired and they you know can't always read every day. But are there ways that when they can read to their child, they can be more effective in helping them understand the reading process? I think that parents can apply that talk acronym to book reading as well. Mm -hmm. So as you're reading, you can still label and point, but you point to the red ball in the picture or you point Mm -hmm. to the title or you sort of bring their attention, particularly once they're around three and can start to pay attention to letters and distinguish them from numbers. You can make the book itself, the object of the book, a a topic of conversation. Because people forget that kids have to learn all those things. They have to learn which way is the right side up (laughs) and that the text goes left to right (laughs) and from top to bottom. And you'd just be surprised by the number of kids that enter school not knowing those things. Mm. But it's not hard for a parent to teach Mm -hmm. about books, about print. Oh, And then also asking questions about what you've read to get Mm -hmm. their engagement and see what they're thinking That makes a lot of sense. A quick question about digital books. So is it important in your estimation that parents have actual books? I mean, I'm old school. I love flipping. I mean, I love the turning pages in a book. And so to me, I'd prefer to read a child a book where you turn the page. But does it really matter if you've got a Kindle and you're flipping it electronically? Does that still have the same impact? I think it matters with the really little ones. Because there's so much they have to learn about turning pages, and they're developing even just motor skills. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. when you're initially building these book behaviors or book experience, sometimes they're throwing the book, they're chewing on them. You don't (laughs) want them to do that with your iPhone (laughs) or your Kindle or this device that you've paid hundreds of dollars for. So I think that we have to let kids explore the object of the book. 
because mm-hmm. it's all about keeping their attention and engagement. And mm-hmm. a book, even those um, the little books where there's a patch that's scratchy or a mm-hmm. patch that is silky, where they're exploring the textures, all mm-hmm. of those are really valuable learning experiences for little ones. We forget they have so much to learn. Yeah, we do. <laughs> before we really they do. get to the phase <laughs> where they need to dive into devices. Yeah, no, we we really do forget that. Now that you're saying this, it's like how you think they just come out knowing you read left or right and <laughs> which way is up, but nope, we have to teach all of them this. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. I want to just skip ahead. First of all, I should just take a quick aside and say, parents, you must get this book for many reasons. First of all, it's a really impressive gathering of really important information and then sort of absorbed and then redistributed in a way that it, it, it's a great how-to. And you list six different sort of areas that parents can focus on. I'm going to skip ahead to one that you list at the end, which is advocacy, because you talk about the importance of focusing on children's reading from a very young age, not only to help their brain development, but also to help you as a parent become a better advocate for them as they get into school and get more involved in the nuts and bolts of reading and more and the and becoming stronger and and better readers of, of more complicated material. So you've got this great roadmap for parents. How can they use your book to approach teachers as children get into school? I mean, if if your child is reading when they start school, for example, uh, should you bring this to the teacher's attention? Should you talk about the kinds of things that you've been doing? Should you expect that the teacher is going to continue in the same way in terms of teaching the child reading? I think it's definitely important for parents to have an open dialogue with teachers view it to the extent that you can as a partnership and you're all Mm -hmm. part of this village that's supporting your child. And you get to a point where the teacher is really with them more than you are in some Mm -hmm. cases. They're asleep half the time that Mm -hmm. they're with you. (laughs) But um, it is important to, I always encourage parents to remember to give a, a positive spin on their child, particularly when they're introducing the child to a new teacher or a new school and leave space for the school or teacher to do their own assessments Mm. and just be curious about the information that you're receiving back. Because I've definitely heard from parents who are researchers like me who know a lot (laughs) about these subjects. And sometimes they'll go into the teacher and, you know, download this report (laughs) (laughs) and it can, it can color the teacher's perspective of your child in ways that you don't anticipate. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I actually have a story about that. My my mom, as I said, was a teacher. She taught me to read. I knew how to read by the time I got to kindergarten. So it was public school and they had open school night where the parents come in to talk to the teachers and see what's going on. And my mom went into the classroom, talked to my kindergarten teacher. And before they started talking about me specifically, they were just teacher to teacher sort of trading stories of what the teaching experience has been like. And this teacher says to my mother, can you believe somebody taught their kid to read? You know, I put these slides up and the kid's trying to read the slides ahead of me. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) And so the next day I was moved to the other kindergarten class. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a, there is a, to your point, teachers do make impressions and sometimes they're not really great ones. (laughs) But that, that I tell that story also to say that it's important for parents to interact with the teachers so they can just get a sense of what their perspective is and, you know, what the fit is with your child. (laughs) 
And to get a feel for that teacher's capacity to, if your child is ahead, we often think about children who are behind and what additional mm-hmm. resources they may need. But there are also cases where a child is ahead. And like in your example, the, the teacher is not willing to teach the child at the level that the child is at. They're sort of like, I'm here to teach this grade level material. Mm-hmm. You're beyond that. So, you know, work on something different. <laughs> or teach yourself, you know, my work here is done. So it's good for parents just to be receptive and ob- observant and listening mm-hmm. to what you're hearing in those parent-teacher conferences and in that back-to-school night. And I always encourage parents to read the state standards or the common core that their state is using to see what grade-level expectations are. What is your child supposed to be able to know and do mm-hmm. at the end of kindergarten or first grade just to have a sense And ask just a few questions of the teacher about how they help kids master those things or Mm. what they teach if the child is beyond that. It's your, Mm -hmm. it's, there are a lot of reading. The book is very positive and encouraging about all the things that parents can do to get their kids ready for school. But I could write a whole other book on some of the reading instruction (laughs) challenges (laughs) that they may encounter once kids are school aged. Mm -hmm. And so I think particularly for black and brown parents, you shouldn't assume that you'll have a teacher who's been well-trained to teach reading and get your child to whatever their next level is. We can't assume that. So we have Mm -hmm. to be kind of aware of expectations, aware of where our child is, and then really advocate to get whatever resources, whether it's remediating if there's an issue or enhancements if they're advanced. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really good advice. I want to ask you two questions on uh, sort of in the same vein. One is because, as you say, the, when you read your book, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I'll follow these really thoughtful uh, approaches and my child will have a leg up. He or she will figure this out. So what happens if you have, despite your best efforts, you can't ignite a reading spark in your child? Now, I had my, my I have three children. The first one took to it like a duck to water. Uh, she was an early reader. And I sort of said, okay, yes, this is the way it goes. And I had these little books that I, um, little books that were designed to help children read. And she just loved those. And we, and so along comes a second child and I pull out the books. And I remember like it was yesterday, he said to me very clearly, I am supposed to learn to read in kindergarten. When I get to kindergarten, <laughs> I will learn to read. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it wasn't quite that strident. Like, where did you get that idea? <laughs> perhaps it wasn't quite that strident, but his was his point was, I would much rather go and play. I really don't want to do this. And I don't have to do this because I'm going to get this. But my point is, there's going to be children that don't take it to it. I mean, when do you push the panic button? I mean, thankfully, in this instance, he was right. He learned to read in kindergarten and sort of took off from there. But at what point should you be concerned if if there's a slow pace and they're not picking it up. I have another handy little acronym for this. <laughs> and so that one is when you're trying to navigate these just challenges as a parent and you're concerned if your child is on track developmentally, then to kind of help get your bearing straight, I have a process or framework called GPS. Oh. And so the G is guidelines, which really is, again, looking at those developmental milestones, looking at the grade level expectations of schools and just having an awareness of where kids of your child's age or grade typically are. So mm-hmm. when you're grounded in that, then in some cases, you'll breathe a sigh of relief and think, okay, they're exactly, they aren't where I thought they should be, but they're where kids typically are. Mm-hmm. And then 
Or you may think, oh my goodness, they're very far behind. And again, those are those guidelines aren't absolute. It doesn't mean if a child hasn't hit this benchmark by this year that they're doomed, but it's just giving you a general sense of how things develop and what to, to look out for in different respects. Then the P is I think parents should really record and document their personal reflections on these things. So mm. journal, take notes. It could be in an app on your phone or in a notebook. But if you're concerned about something, write down the specific example. So some parents may think that their child has a speech issue or Mm -hmm. some kind of processing issue and write the date, the time and a little description so that down the road when you're with the pediatrician or the teacher or the preschool teacher, whoever you have kind of a specifics of Mm -hmm. what you're observing and feeling about what you're observing relative to those guidelines and general expectations. And then the S is specialists. I always recommend that parents talk to your pediatrician, ask for the referral to the speech therapist or whatever you think the issue is. I've just talked to so many parents who felt like something was going on. They didn't know what it was, but they just kept asking questions and they found out their child had a hearing issue Mm. or the child had a speech issue and all of those things because oral language is so important for reading. We have to watch those things early. So I always encourage parents to be proactive And Mm -hmm. I've just heard too many stories of parents who thought there was an issue talking to a school or an administrator and the person saying, oh, it's okay. Some kids just take longer. Mm -hmm. It may be the case. There may be no issue, but there's no harm in investigating and digging around and and saying, because oftentimes there is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's good to know. So my final question on this, for the purposes of the podcast, I mean, I could talk to you about this for much (laughs) longer, but the, the last question I'll ask you today is... So, so you've raised this reader, you're, you've followed the roadmap and your child is a happy reader. Do you think there's a, a point where as a parent, you should step out of the reading process with your children? Do you think there's a point at which they're too old to be read to or where they need to be independently reading where you shouldn't be a part of their, say you've developed this ritual? I mean, is, is there a point at which you needs to be some end to it? I don't think there's a point where you have to step out. I do think there may be a point where they push you out. (laughs) So my daughter now is a middle schooler, and she won't let me read her essays. She does not want my opinion. She does not want my edits or thoughts. So she writes her essays, she turns them in, and I don't know the result until I see the grade in the online grade book that the, the school publishes. So I know parents who read nightly to their children all the way through high school. If you have a high schooler who will let you read to them or read things to you, what a wonderful, beautiful experience of just years and years of shared books. And Mm -hmm. people have told me stories of book clubs. Some parents read, even if the child won't let them read aloud to them, they may read the same books that the child is reading just to have that shared conversation and those stories to talk about and ask questions about and connect over. Mm -hmm. When some of my children got to high school, I kind of dove back in and and I I learned this from a friend. And when I first heard it, I thought it was kind of crazy. But then by the time my kids got to high school, I actually did it. What my friend told me was that she would read some of the same books that her son was reading. They would read it and then get together and discuss it. And I thought, oh my gosh, what overkill. But when some of my children got to high school, I found myself doing this because first of all, it was fun to do. And then 
I found it was really helpful to understand, to get a grasp of their reading comprehension and their reading approach, even as high schoolers. I mean, it actually gets important in high school because they're doing a lot of standardized testing and reading comprehension is really important. By high school, they've, if they can read, they, they, they've got it as a skill set, but that comprehension part, sort of the, the nuances of the things that are tested, but not just that are tested, the things that make you really enjoy books, it's a deeper level and it's interesting to see how that develops in, an, in a teenager. So I would find we go through these books and I have to confess, sometimes I would sneak and get the cliff notes because I didn't have time to read them all, all the books <laughs> at the same time. But anyway, <laughs> to just talk about not only what we're reading, but what do you think about this and what do you think this character would think? I mean, it was really fun to engage with these high school schoolers and just to hear about how they grasped things. And frankly, it made me understand a lot better about how their brains worked. And in instances where I didn't think they'd read deeply enough, I could try to say, because that's a very, I mean, you're, in a, you're walking a really thin line there. <laughs> if, they're letting, if they're letting you read the same book you're reading, you really can't critique too much, but it gives you a good handle because by the time you get to high school and you're interacting with their teachers and you really are a partnership trying to figure out sort of how deeply they can learn, it's great to have this data in your head as a parent. So, so good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is wonderful. And again, then you have all those shared memories of all those stories and conversations around them that you can come back to for years. Yeah, I, I agree. The picture books. I would have to say that probably they are much fonder memories in my mind than they are in my children's, but but yes, <laughs> I agree. They are fond memories. <laughs> so... Maya, I, as I said, there's so much more that I, I, I love this topic. I love your treatment of it, and I'd love to keep going, but I'm going to close here. And I'm going to thank you so much for spending the time with me, for having this really great conversation. And I know that parents who are listening really, really appreciate this, uh, your, your experience, your advice, you're pouring it all into this book and giving them a roadmap to, to help their kids. So, but there's one more thing before we go. And that is, I need you to play the GCP lightning round. So there are four okay. quick questions. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Here we go. What is your favorite poem or saying? My favorite saying is one from my dad and he just always taught me to front load my effort. And he would say, work as hard as you can to learn as much as you can, as fast as you can. And <laughs> I just like that idea because in life, things, unexpected things come up and you can fall behind. So if you have that head start, that jump start, you're in better position to recover and be resilient. That's great. I'm guessing that Zora has heard that from you once or twice. <laughs> she hasn't, but I'm going to start telling her. <laughs> <laughs> She will. So give me your favorite two children's books. Oh, this should be easy since you are, you are a book lover. Your favorite two children's books. And they can be um, from your childhood or ones that you and Zora enjoy together. My favorite children's book from when I was a child, the one that I would always go directly to in that Ears Branch Library in Akron, Ohio, is Bringing the Rain to Kapiti Plain, which was just this beautifully illustrated story about a drought and a father and son kind of shooting the rain out of a storm cloud. But there was just beautiful rhythm and repetition in the illustrations. And um, there were drawings of wild animals in this plane. And it was just another world. And I loved that book and read it over and over. Then as an wow. adult, my favorite children's book is Each Kindness by Jacqueline Woodson, which mm -hmm. is about uh, a new girl in an elementary school environment. And kids kind of tease her and call her never new because of her hand-me-down clothes. And she's oh. just constantly smiling and trying to find her way into friendships and eventually just plays alone, like can never kind of make that inroads. 
with the kids. She's absent from a few from school for a few days. The teacher gives a lesson on kindness by dropping some pebbles in water and showing the kids kind of like the ripple effect of doing a kind thing. And one of the girls thinks she's going to smile and be kind to this girl the next day, but the girl never comes back to school. Her family has moved away. And it's just, to me, such as a powerful, moving story, so clearly and succinctly told in a picture book that mm-hmm. just be nice, be kind, be more than nice, be kind, be warm, be accepting of people. And also that hard lesson that kids need and adults need to be reminded of that you don't always get another chance to be better, <laughs> to be kind. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That sounds like a great book. And uh, I mean, I'm not surprised. I love Jacqueline Woodson's work, but wow, that sounds great. Those are great, great answers. So now we're going to just shift to you as a mom. And so I need a a mom moment that you would love to do over. And by that, I mean that you could do, you would do differently if you did it over. Nothing deep, just (laughs) something that you wish you could redo. (laughs) So I remember when my daughter was very young, we were playing and someone was being nice, just trying to make conversation and held up a ball with a word printed on it and asked her to read the word. And she froze. And she said, like, just the name of the first letter. And in my mind, I like flipped out and overreacted. I'm like, she can't read. But mind you, she was little and didn't need to be reading. And so I definitely had like that overreaction and that I wanted her to be assessed and, you know, just going into overdrive, like she's behind, she's behind. So mom do over in the sense of when someone puts your child on the spot (laughs) and they're nervous and don't perform, like don't, don't overreact. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that's. I'm, I'm sure that impacted you as much as it impacted her because I, I know there have been many times when I've done things and thought, oof, but I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so give me a moment when you knew you nailed it as a mom. <laughs> well, this one is sort of a, a mixed report, but one that comes to mind is uh, my daughter got into the car after school one day crying because she had overheard someone saying something negative about her mm-hmm. and she was really upset. And it was actually an adult in the school. And so I, Again, uh, perhaps overreacting. <laughs> no, no I'm such like, thing here. <laughs> I'm, I'm parking. I'm parking the car, and we're right. going to address adults speaking about children in a school where they, can, you know, can overhear or whatever. And she, my daughter, stopped me and she said, "No!" Like through tears, "No, no, let me go, let me go." And I'm thinking she wants to watch me confront this adult <laughs> for, you know, my my limited understanding of the situation for this issue. But I pause and I said. Why do you want to go? And she said, I'll do it. So I was quiet and just walked into the school with her and was sort of like, kind of like an ally. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say advocate because I was silent. I was just by her side. And she approached this adult (laughs) in school (laughs) through tears and told her what she had heard, how she felt about it, and why that person was wrong in their assessment about what they had observed. And I was so proud of her for just the the strength that she exhibited in advocating for herself, even though she was, you know, sensitive and hurt through tears. And I was proud of myself for stepping aside. It hadn't mm-hmm. occurred to me that she could handle that. And she handled mm-hmm. it better than I could have. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a great story. I just have to ask, what was the adult's reaction? She apologized to her. <laughs> Good. For for what she has said and her misunderstanding and all thing and and thanked me for bringing her back into the the building. Wow. 
That's great. That's a great story. <laughs> and those are all such great answers. And I thank you so much, Maya, again, for being with us today. So everyone, make sure you get the book. It's called Reading for Our Lives. Maya Payne Smart, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I loved this conversation. Great. Thanks. Me too. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.